Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. It's good to be in spiritual family with you. And as Grace mentioned, we are all part of the same family. And again, I hear about all the great things that God's doing here. And again, send love from Broussard, Louisiana. I'm so grateful. Um, just know this. I'm saying all of this to say we're a part of family. You're not here on your own. You're not here doing this by yourself. You're a part of a bigger family. And so I'm with my cousins this morning. Look at the person next to you and say, that's my cousin on the stage. Y'all going to have to liven up a little bit. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Look at the person on your side right next to you and say, that's my cousin on stage. Now look at your second choice, the person you didn't pick first for whatever reason, maybe because they're your spouse and you're mad at them. Look at them and say, that's my cousin on stage. We are talking this morning about something that is so important to the day and time that we live in, pertinent to the season of life we're in. It just so happens to be the, the greatest message that Jesus gave when he came. Everywhere that Jesus went, he talked about this idea, this concept of the kingdom of God. And right out the gate, when I talk about the kingdom, if you've grown up in church or if you've been around church, depending on whatever your church background is, you have somewhat of a semblance in your mind of what the kingdom of God is. Well, I'm here this morning to hopefully mess that up. And to give you the biblical perspective of what the kingdom of God actually is. So let me tell you this. First and foremost, Jesus was a Jewish man. Jesus was not a white man. Jesus was not a black man. Ironically enough, we have pictures where Jesus is white, Jesus is black, Jesus with dreadlocks. You never see Asian Jesus, if you've, if you've ever noticed that. You never see like a picture of Jesus that's Asian. Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jewish man. He came from the line of Jewish people, fulfilling promises that were made to the Jewish people for many hundreds, if not thousands of years, promises about who he was and what the Messiah would accomplish. So the Jewish people had in their mind that when the Messiah came, he was going to establish an earthly kingdom. They thought that when the Messiah came, he was going to, in a sense, take the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, and would reestablish them as the dominant superpower in the world. Under the rule of David and under Solomon, they were the gem of the earth. And they believed that the Messiah would come and would reestablish this. And the nations of the world would bow down and follow Israel because they were God's chosen people. So they believed that the kingdom would be an earthly kingdom. Yet here we are as Christians today, when we think about the kingdom of God, we often think of it as simply a heavenly kingdom. We think of the kingdom as this ethereal one-day concept. One day when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, and I will be in the kingdom of God. One day when I pass from death into life, I will be a part of the kingdom of God. Well, let me tell you something about the kingdom of God. Both of those concepts are right and wrong because the kingdom of God is both. The kingdom of God is both here on earth and will have its fulfillment one day in heaven. 
Jesus came to establish his kingdom on earth and bring you into its fullness in eternity one day. Are y'all with me this morning? The kingdom is both now and to come. Only God can do that. Only God can establish his kingdom here and in eternity. So I'm going somewhere with this, and just to let you know, I am going to talk about a very broad topic, and I'm going to make it very simple and very practical by the end of this message. But this was God's kingdom. This is what he came to do. And you may ask, Pastor, why is that important to me? Why, why do I need to know that? Because you, if you're born again, are a part of God's kingdom. And if you are a part of God's kingdom, there's two things you need to know. One, you have a responsibility as a member of God's kingdom. And I'm going to talk about that responsibility later. But the next thing is, if we're not careful, we will be so concerned about the kingdoms of this world that we forget about what the kingdom of God is doing in this world. The election is coming up this week. And some of you cringe at the thought of me even bringing that up in church. Well, uh, you're going to do that a lot today. But the kingdom of God is greater than even our election, and you need to vote. Let me say that again. You need to vote. But God, don't get so caught up in who is going to be the president of the United States that you forget what the God of the universe is speaking to our world today. Because he is. And I told this to the first service. I believe that the year 2020 is what they call in the Bible in the Old Testament the day of the Lord. Meaning not the final judgment, but a day where the Lord steps in and says, I'm going to get everyone's attention in the world and you are going to see that I am God. And I believe that's what the Lord is doing in our day and in our time. And he's coming with a mission to establish his kingdom. So that's why it's important that you understand what the kingdom of God is, that you have the right perspective, because everywhere that Jesus went, he talked about the kingdom of God, and that's what he came to spread. So what is the kingdom, pastor? The kingdom is two words put together, the king's domain, the king's dominion. That means that anything that the king oversees is a part of his kingdom. And the goal of the kingdom, this is the point of my whole my message today is this. If you're taking those, write this down. This is the goal of the kingdom. The goal of the kingdom is to spread the rule of the king. The entire goal of God's kingdom is to spread his rulership in all of the earth, his kingdom. God is able to establish his kingdom in the middle of all of the kingdoms of the world. He's able to step into what you think is yours, get right in the middle of it and go, no, this is mine. I paid for it. Not only did I create it, even though you took it over after I created it, I'm able to take it back and pay for it. It's mine. And for all of us who are born again today, that's why we talk about this in the book of John chapter three. We quote this almost every single Sunday in our churches. We talk about you not even being able to enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are first, what? Born again. When you're born again, you enter into his rulership and he becomes the Lord of your life. And let me say that again, Lord of your life. And oftentimes we think, well, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior and we treat the two like they're the same. They are not the same. Savior means this is what he paid for. He rescued you. Lord means I'm bowing my knee and I'm following him. 
And he's come to establish his lordship and his rulership in all of the earth. And our job as a part of that kingdom is to spread that kingdom in all of the earth. That's your role. That's your mission if you should choose to accept it. That is God's plan for your life. The Jewish people, again, they thought Jesus was coming to to establish just an earthly kingdom, like just a nation that the rest of the nations would follow. Not knowing he was coming to change the entirety of the whole world for this life and for eternity. See, part of the conflict between Jesus and the Jews was not just the fact that they were religious. Part of the conflict is they had the wrong expectation on Jesus. They thought Jesus was going to make himself a physical king, but instead he made himself the king of heaven and earth all at the same time. See, isn't that the problem even within our relationships and our marriages? You have conflict because you have an expectation on someone that they don't meet. Come on, married people, don't get quiet on me in church today. You have an expectation on your spouse, and when they don't meet that, there's a conflict. There's a problem. Best friends, you have an expectation that they're going to do something that they don't do, and all of a sudden, they're no longer your best friend. Why? Because there was a missed expectation. The Jewish people had an expectation on Jesus, but Jesus is God, and he showed up and said, I don't have to live up to your expectations. I'm here to establish my kingdom. And that's exactly what he did. I want to read this to you in in Luke chapter 17, verse 20. says this. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Let me stop right there. If Jesus' job was to establish this nation and this kingdom and he was going to be the king here on earth, they expected that Jesus would raise up an army. They expected that Jesus was going to start recruiting his people because they had been waiting for this Messiah for all of this time. They're expecting him to start gathering his troops and then he starts getting fishermen together. And they're like, what's going on? They, they're looking for this Messiah to come and overthrow the Roman government. And then he tells them, yeah, we'll pay you taxes. What? They were expecting one thing and he did another. Let's keep going. Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is in your midst. What was he saying? You're expecting me to do this, but you're missing what I'm doing. You're expecting that, but I'm doing this. And it's happening in your midst, and you cannot even see it. See, sometimes we miss what God is doing because he isn't doing what we think he should be doing. I'm going to say that again on this side because I'm feeling a little more love on this side today. Sometimes we miss what God is doing because he's not doing what we think he should be doing. And let me help you. God does not do things our way. God is not Burger King. You don't show up and get it your way. As a matter of fact, God does not come and take sides. He expects us to be on his side. And so he does not do, he, the way God does things is so counterintuitive to our worldly minds. It's so countercultural to the way we've established our, the kingdoms of the world that he comes and he, he tells us things that just, they challenge us. 
because he knows the right way. Jesus will tell us things like this, like he challenged his disciples with things like this. If you want to be great, yeah, Jesus, we want to be great. You want to be great. I want to be great. Then be the greatest servant of all. Serve everybody. If you want to be great, then be the servant of every person. Jesus, that doesn't make sense. And then Jesus says things like this. If your enemy strikes you, turn the other cheek. But we don't like that one, do we? How many of you have that on your refrigerator as a scripture? How many? Be honest. How many of you are writing your index cards trying to remember scripture, wrote that one down? How many? I didn't think so. One, one godly woman in the building. We don't do that because we don't like that. Yet that's the call of a disciple. He does things differently than the way that we do. He tells us to pray for our enemies. And that, for some of us, seems impossible. But then he ups it and he says, bless those who curse you. Oh, Jesus, I don't know about Okay, that's a bit much. That's a little extreme, Lord, don't you think? I was meeting with a, a young guy whom I'm, I'm discipling at our church, and his wife owns a business. And uh, I'm meeting with him, and he's telling me about these hardships that they're facing in the business because someone came through the business and started bad-mouthing them, started talking about them, started going on Facebook and just talking negatively about the business. And he was genuinely concerned. Which, on a side note, let me say something about Facebook. Facebook is not persecution. Persecution is persecution. I had someone in our church come and say, did you hear what people were saying about the church? I said, let me explain something to you. The disciples were beaten, put in prison, and killed for the faith. I can handle 30 people saying something negative on Facebook about us. Just as a side note. But this man was genuinely concerned about this, this lady saying all of these bad things about their business because it's an upstart business. They're trying to get going, and they didn't want to, like, I don't want to, to lose out on this. And I told him something. I challenged him with Jesus' way of doing it. I said, pray for that woman. And he was like, okay. I said, then send her a $25 gift card. He didn't want to do that. The same way you wouldn't want to do that. But let me explain what you do when you do that. When you bless your enemies, you allow God to step into the situation and you're fine. He's no, he's no longer having to deal with your heart in the matter. He can step in and judge the situation properly. So when you obey God, you move out of the way and God can step in and do his thing. Bless your enemies. What am I saying? He does not do things the way that we do them. He does not. And as followers of Jesus, we carry his way of doing things. We carry his kingdom with us everywhere that we go. You may not know this, but you don't recognize who you really are. You don't know who you really are. How do I know that? Because we don't often understand the fact that the answer to all of the problems around us is already inside of us. If the king lives in you, then his kingdom is inside of you. So everywhere that you go, you bring the kingdom of God with you. 
And this may sound like preacher talk, it is not, I assure you, it is the biblical reality of who you really are. I heard a pastor say this, he said, I was sitting in a a car wash, and he said, and I looked around and I just thought, man, these people don't know who I am, do they? And that sounds arrogant, but he clarified. He said, I wasn't talking about my notoriety or how well known I am. These people don't recognize that the problem, the the solution to all of the problems that they're facing lives inside of me. Let me tell you something. The answer to the problems in New Iberia is not government. It is not political. It is the kingdom which lives in you. You are the solution. And everywhere that you go, everywhere God plants you and God places you, he is putting the answer to the problem in the problem. He is putting the solution right smack dab in the middle of it. Your job, man, these people are messed up. Guess who the solution is? When you go out in your community and you think, God, what's happening to this community? He's already sent the answer inside of you because the kingdom is inside. I'm telling you, you've got it. I want you to see this so bad. Because if you can see who you really are, you can see what your mission is. If you can see who you really are, you can see what the solution is to all of the problems. The answer to our nation is not just politics. It is not policy. It is the kingdom of God invading the earth. That is the solution. That is the solution but the kingdom is in you. Pastor, I'm not sure about that. Let me confirm it to you. The book of 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, this is what it says. It says, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. It means that though the devil may oversee Though he may be wreaking havoc, every place you go, the greater one is inside of you. But you have to release it. You've got to release the kingdom. Because the goal of the kingdom is to spread the rule of the king. This is how the kingdom is spread. This is how we find the solutions. This is how we change our communities. This is how we change our families. This is how we change the world. See, when teaching about the kingdom, Jesus was so brilliant. He would give us parables to show us what this kingdom was really like. Because he was constantly having to debug the Jewish people and to teach them this is what this really is. And he gives us just such a parable that I want to share with you this morning. In Mark chapter 4, verse 30, he says this. Again, he said, what shall I say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Jesus was saying the kingdom of God is not a spectacular sight to be seen. When the kingdom of God is spreading, it does not get news coverage. 
When the kingdom of God is spreading, it is not something that you sit back and go, there it is, or there it was. It's in your midst, and it's happening every day. Let me, let me describe this for you. Pastor Sean is doing an amazing job here. When Pastor Sean goes to visit someone in the hospital, and he prays with them, and that person gets born again, how I many you know that's not on the radio? I mean, let's know that he doesn't get like 400 retweets when he does that. Because it seems small and it seems insignificant. But what happens when he does that? And then that person, that person invests in their kids and their family gets born again. And then those kids go to their school and they spread the gospel and they start sharing the kingdom. And the kingdom gets spread at their school. And all of a sudden, hundreds of people's lives are changed because of one seed that went in the ground in the hospital room. That is how the kingdom spreads. Need further proof? I want you to think about this. Jesus, who lived over 2,000 years ago, died on a cross in a relatively remote region of the world, relatively small nation, under the Roman Empire. They weren't even their own independent nation. And he died on a cross over 2,000 years ago. And mind you, there is not much historical proof of that happening. There is historical proof in the fact that we have the Bible and that we do have some Roman chronicles that can go back and say he was tried and and he really did live. So there is all of that. But it was not mass media in the Roman times. You weren't reading about that in Rome in the newspaper. Yet here we are over 2,000 years later. And today, the last statistic I read is 2.4 billion people claim to be followers of Jesus Christ because one man over 2,000 years ago died on the cross and rose again. The kingdom goes in relatively unnoticed, but you see its fruit. You see its impact in all of the world. So, Pastor... How do I spread the kingdom? I'm so glad you asked. Because Jesus gives it to us pretty plainly. and You've probably even heard the scripture in the last few weeks here in church. Are y'all with me this morning? Matthew chapter 28 verse 16 says this. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. This is after Jesus had risen from the dead. To the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, listen to this, don't miss this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I died on the cross, arose again from the dead. I just defeated death. This is all mine now. The nations of the world are mine now. I paid the price for them. Therefore, since that happened, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Don't miss this because he just told you how to change the world. He just showed you the recipe, the blueprint, the master plan for how to change Now, if I were to ask you, what did he just say? Some of you would say, he's saying, go out and preach the gospel. And I would say, you're wrong. 
Because that is not what he said. That's what we interpret that he said. And I love mass evangelism. I love big evangelistic events. I'm all for them, legitimately. I love big crowds of people that show up and people raising their hands by the hundreds and getting born again. God is in that. I am for that. That is one of the fivefold ministries that God has given as a gift to the church. But that was not the commission of the church. The commission of the church was this. Go and make disciples. That is our call. That is how you change the world. That is how you spread the kingdom. That is how you spread his rulership to the earth. You go and you make disciples. Let me tell you something, New Iberia campus. Your responsibility as being a believer and a born-again Christian and a part of his kingdom is not simply to show up in church on Sunday mornings. You did not do God a favor by showing up in church today. God's not up there going... The extent of you spreading his kingdom is not simply serving, although we need you to serve. Please serve in the nursery and the kids' ministry in particular. (laughs) Your call, the call of God on your life is to make disciples. That is how we change the world. That is how we spread the gospel. Pastor, what does that look like? First of all, let me explain what disciple means. A disciple is a disciplined follower of Christ. And Jesus said, go out into all of the world, teaching them how to obey my commandments. When you make disciples, you are grabbing someone by the hand and you are teaching them how to follow Jesus. And let me just tell you this. Evangelism without discipleship is child abuse. When you win someone to Christ and you've brought them and they raise their hand and they pray the prayer and they're excited about Jesus and we're all, this is great, this is amazing, that's so good, I've been praying for you. And this is what we do. We leave them to fend for themselves. We don't do that as parents. We don't get a, uh, have a child and go, you're so, you're so pretty, you're so beautiful. I'm going to sit you right here and come back when you're 20. We don't do that. Why? Because they have to be, they have to go through the process of maturation. You have to bring them into maturity. You have to help them grow. You have to teach them the things that they don't know. You have to prepare them for life. Let me speak to everyone in this church who's been a mature believer. You've been following Jesus for some time. Irregardless of your physical age, you've been, you're a seasoned believer. You probably got to this point, most likely you got to this point, because someone discipled you, and they walked with you, and they helped you grow into a mature relationship with God. Why do we expect those who are just getting born again to grow any other way? They're going to grow the same way you grew, with someone grabbing a hold and teaching you how to walk with Jesus. Well, Pastor, I've been, I've been in church for 20 years. I've been following Jesus for 25 years. Let me ask you a very serious question. That is in, incredible. But what fruit do you have to show from that 25 years? Who has benefited from you following God consistently for 20 years? Who is a mature Christian because you have matured into a mature Christian? 
See, the kingdom of God spreads by discipling other people, by teaching them. So the doors of our church are so big in the back door because we've, we bring people in. We promise them salvation. We promise them God. And then we don't help their lives change. And I can tell you this as a preacher. We've gotten some things wrong in our nation when it comes to the church. We've been so concerned with getting fish on the boat. How many fish can we get on the boat? Let's get more fish on the boat. And we never clean the fish. And when you have a boat with a bunch of fish that aren't clean, the boat stinks. The boat stinks. And so we are rediscovering, we, we are re-engaging the mandate of Jesus, which is to go into all of the world and don't just mass evangelize and don't just build the biggest churches and the biggest buildings. Go and make disciples. That's my call. If you're trying to discover what's, what's God's plan for my life, I can tell you this, it involves making disciples. What has God called me to be? Someone who makes disciples. This is how God builds. God builds his church three ways. And I'm going to get to that in a moment. Let me say this. Many of us on a Sunday morning, it's easy for us to walk in and look at a new believer and just go, God bless your heart. And what you're really saying is you're an idiot. You see people who, and you, they come in and you think, man, they're not doing that right. And they're not doing that right. Let me tell you why you see that, so that you can help them. Maybe to all of my mature, seasoned ladies who've been following Jesus for a while, when you see a young woman walking and she's dressed inappropriately, maybe instead of gossiping about her, you would take her to lunch and teach her about modesty and how to honor God. And listen to me, when I talk about modesty, I'm not advocating for, for like long skirts and long hair. Don't go there. I'm talking about modesty, okay? Maybe older men, when you see a young man walk in and he is so full of himself because life has not hit him yet, and you see the lust in his eyes and the pride in his heart, rather than staying away from him, waiting him to fall, how about you engage him so that he does not have to fall? What am I talking about? Discipleship. Teaching someone to obey God. And listen, for those of you who are newer to the faith, let me give you some wisdom that will save you a lot of trouble. You cannot do this by yourself. You were never intended to do this by yourself. For 10 years of my life, I had a pastor engage my life at 19 years old and disciple me. And I'm going to say this. There were moments where he had to beat the living daylights out of me because I would not have seen it any other way. And he encouraged me, and I watched him be a husband, and I watched him be a father. I watched him pray. I watched him seek the face of God. And the whole time, I was learning what it meant to be a better disciple. I needed that. If you're new here, you need someone. Well, how do I find them? Look for someone who has what you want. Stop trying to be self-made, a self-made man or a self-made woman. I can do this. I got this. Find someone who has what you want and go learn how they got it. God builds the church three ways. He builds it revelationally. 
He builds his church off of the foundation that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the revelation that changes everything. When you realize that, and I'm not talking about he's my Lord, he's my Savior. When you realize that God is who he says he is, that Jesus is who he says he is, and you get that revelation, it changes everything. As a matter of fact, when, when Jesus was talking to Peter, and they were having that conversation, and, and Jesus told Peter, Peter, you, that revelation you just got that I'm the son of God, listen, on this rock I will build my church. He was not talking about Peter. He was not saying Peter was the pope. He was saying the revelation of what I, you just said is the foundation for the church. And I will build my church off of the revelation that Jesus is Lord. So he builds it revelationally. He also builds it relationally, which lends to the point I just made. You were not intended to do this by yourself. Christianity is not, is not built for lone rangers. It's not built for the people who says, I got this. I don't need anybody in my business. Good. Don't invite them in your business and just watch your business fail. Because we need one another. And whether you like them or not, but the person sitting in front of you in church, God probably put them in your life for a reason because you need something that they have. See, the church is not, to, listen, I'm not advocating for codependence and I'm not advocating for independence, but the kingdom of God is interdependent where we need one another and we build with one another. So, God builds revelationally, he builds relationally, and then lastly, he builds generationally. If the church is going to be what God wants it to be, you have to take all that he's invested in you and invest it in someone else. And then they're going to invest what you've invested in them and invest it in someone else. God builds his church generationally. And the greatest days of this church are still ahead of this church. And there is a rich lineage and a rich history of amazing stories that I've heard that have happened at this very altar. God's not done. He's not done. But he needs us to get out of our world and to think about someone else and to build generationally. Say, I'm going to grab a hold of someone else and bring them into maturity with Christ if they're willing. If they're willing. And I'm going to end with this scripture in Titus. I'm in the book of Titus right now on my own personal reading. And I'm going to, getting ready to teach a series in our church about it. And what struck me and so ironic about the book of Titus is that it's a book written by the Apostle Paul to someone that he's discipling named Titus. And he's primarily talking about Titus discipling his people and challenges them to disciple people. What I mean by that, there's four generations of Christianity in that one book. Because that's how God builds. That is how the rulership of the kingdom spreads. God invested in Paul. Paul invests in Titus. Titus invested in his leaders and his leaders were expected to invest in other people. That is not a Ponzi scheme. That is not a pyramid scheme. This is the church of Jesus Christ, and this is how we build generationally. I'm going to give you an example of that as I close. In Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Likewise, this is Paul talking to Titus. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers 
or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. To teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. What was he saying? Titus, you teach them how to teach others. You invest in them what's been invested in you, and you challenge them to invest in others. This is how we change the world, church. It is not a mass gathering. It's the slow process of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And this is how we change the world. If you will close your eyes with me, I want to pray for you. My Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this congregation. It's been an answer to prayer in this city. And it is, it is a drastic part of the solution of changing this community. Thank you for the prophecies that have come forward for this community. Thank you for the things that are yet to be seen that we're waiting on. But I pray that you would impart into every person in this building the very heart of God, your very heart, to make disciples of all nations. Help us to get beyond seeing ourselves and to see those who are in need, who need what we have. And I thank you for bringing change in this community. And I thank you for the ripple effects from this building that will be felt in every area, every, every area of this city. God, from the worst place in this city, God, to the upper echelons of this community, I pray they would all be impacted by what your kingdom and how your kingdom is spreading in this church. We thank you for that. 